Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. And away we go. Here we are with episode number 55 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, and I am flying solo today as my co-host and friend, Mike Perry, uh, is on his travels to head out to speak at the Perform Better Summit out in Chicago. So uh, I did not want to miss out on the opportunity to to grab the guest that we have today because it's going to be some some really great stuff. And, and I was introduced uh, to this gentleman by Paul Colodi, who was our guest about a month or so ago, and he said, yeah, absolutely have to have coach Vanderbush on. So um, Kevin Vanderbush has uh, entered his 40th year. God bless you, coach, as a strength and conditioning coach for all sports at Ben Davis High School in Indianapolis. He teaches advanced weight training, which is a class that involves both strength training and athletic and enhancement activities. Is uh, a Purdue graduate and got his master's in Indiana, and he's also a strength and conditioning coach and, um, and is a co-founder of the National High School Strength and Conditioning Coaches Association. He's, and he's received five different national awards, including the National High School Strength Coaches Association Hall of Fame, the American Football Monthly Samson High School Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year, the NSCA High School Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year, and the AFLAC National Assistant Coach of the Year Award, and, and the Pro Football Strength and Conditioning Society National High School Strength and Conditioning of the Year. It's quite a few uh, and, and quite a background and can't wait to talk to you. Coach Vanderbush, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. So reading up on some of the stuff that you were very kind to send over uh, about some of the programs you run, I'm, I'm fascinated. And someone, as someone who works with high schools, I was on the field this morning with a high school soccer team. I'm really interested in, in how you've created a, a culture and what you've done there at, at Ben Davis. And so one of the things that I was reading up on is something called a unified concept. Talk about what that means in a school environment. Well, my contention is that uh, athletes in the 14 to 18 year old age range, the kids I get at high school, all need a base of strength and athleticism. And that very often they come to me with a lot of imbalances. Some of them have specialized early and they've only played their sport. Um, some of them have not gone through any type of you know, physical movement development when they come to me. And when I break down you know, what people call sport specific programs, I see that the bones really look the same. And, and at our school, we only get a short period of time to work with the kids. I have them all in a strength training class during the school day. So it's a 30, 35 minute span. And in that period of time, by keeping the, the concept unified, where all my athletes, regardless of what sport they're in, are on the same program, then I can fit 80 kids in the class. I can supervise it. We can order equipment based on it. And, you know, kids can be multi-sport athletes and the, and the track coach is not worried about what the football coach is doing with them. 
So it, it becomes an ease in terms of supervision, in terms of uh, you know ordering equipment, in terms of organization. But but I have found that by improving the basic strength and athleticism of the athletes that I work with, they perform better on the field regardless of the sport. And when I talk to my sport coaches and say, you know, hey, you know, what do you feel like we've left out or what's not in there? And, you know, they really can't come up with anything. So, you know, I leave it to them on that court and on the field to do sports specificity, you know, where their conditioning programs or, you know, their skill work has to do with their particular sport. But for me, it's, you know, let's, let's create a, a better athlete, a more mobile athlete, a stronger athlete, a more powerful athlete, and then they take it from there. I love it. And there's some points that you brought up that I want to circle back to, but uh, I want to get to some of the quotes that you use quite often and that you use as pillars of the program. And one that stood out in reading some of your stuff is that we accomplish in proportion to what we attempt. Uh, explain how you kind of see your, your coaching transcending just training and sport and, and, and really building better young women and men. You know, what I found out early on was that strength and conditioning is an unbelievable platform to develop people. And, you know, for me, it, when kids leave me, you know, 10, 15 years later, when they come back, we, we don't talk about the weight program. We don't talk about, um, you know, what necessarily even what they did athletic. It's more about, they talk to me about the things that I help them that transfer to what end up being life lessons about structure, about discipline, about habits, about setting goals. Found early on, you know, again, that when I study, there's only a certain amount of science I can use with the kids. A majority of my study now has to do with motivation, leadership, um, you know, how to push buttons, how to, you know, develop relationships. And, you know, I start each day with the idea that I want to mentor, counsel, advise, you know, and, and make a difference in lives. And when I do that, then it becomes that I'm looking for opportunities to reach kids, you know, talk about their personal life, talk about what's going on in their sport, help them in terms of sports psychology. I mean, I really think strength and conditioning professionals need to have, if not a major, at least a minor in sports psychology, because to me, there's only a limited amount of science that you can use. And I, and I use this analogy. I say, you know, if you, if you think about a house, okay, and it's on fire and you can only take the most prized possessions and you get... So whatever you can fit in your luggage. When you look at high school strength and conditioning, it's kind of like that. What is out there in terms of, you know, all the different tools that we could use is, is the house. What we actually get to use is what you can put in the suitcase. So for me, you know, it's like once I've, you know, done the basics of, you know, this is what we need to accomplish in the room. To me, it's more about me talking with the kids, uh, communicating with the kids, uh, you know, doing all those type of things. So you know, I, I feel like that's the most important thing I do. So, you know, my reading now has to do with personal development, sports psychology, and all those type of things. Now, how much do you think that we kind of bear the responsibility in terms of our branding and our image as strength coaches? And I know one of the things that frustrates me when I show up to some of the schools that I consult with and a coach brings me in and it's like, oh, here's the strength coach. He's here to quote unquote beat you up, right? And, and it's about, they think that we're just there to, to just pound kids into submission or be this kind of rah-rah tough guy that you see on the sidelines jumping up and down or slapping kids on the helmet. Like how much of that do we somewhat bear the responsibility of, of changing that, um, that role that we fill and, and, and putting out a better image of, of who we are and what we potentially can be to uh, an environment like it that you're in? 
Well, you know, I feel like strength and conditioning, in my opinion, has a lot of issues, you know, and, and part of it stems from there are so many different ways to accomplish things and there's so many diff different methods that are used. But I, I also feel like social media has hurt strength and conditioning just like it has a number of other things in that in order for me to show you what I know and, and how specialized, I got to put all these bells and whistles. I've got to do all these fancy things. I've got to, what in my opinion is do a lot of overcoaching to justify that what I'm doing is special. And, you know, to convince that parent that you're giving that kid, you know, exactly what they need. And, you know, you can compare it to what some personal trainer is doing somewhere else. Uh, fortunately, I've been around long enough where I don't have to deal with the same things that, you know, some of the other new guys have to just because our program is so established and, you know, the parents, the teachers in the school, the athletic administration, the sport coaches have all seen what we're able to accomplish by staying very simple. And, you know, my personality and to me, any strength coach's personality should, you know, be shown in, in how they coach. You know, I'm not a big cheerleader. I'm not a rah-rah guy. No, I mean, I, I'm more of the type that if I can get you to, you know, kind of get fired up based on the things I'm telling you, it's much more important than me being the one that's out there in the middle of the field that everybody's looking at. Um, you know, I see some strength coaches that to me are kind of, you know, take on that court gesture or cheerleading role. Um, that's not who I am. And to me, I want to be able to walk away. I want to be able to be on the sideline and have my kids be fired up and be motivated and do things the right way, as opposed to relying on me for that. And if I do my job right, I can walk out of the room and the room looks the same. You know, I can walk off the field and the field looks the same. So, uh, you know, my contention has always been that, you know, that what we do is that we transfer that responsibility to the athletes, you know, and that by, you know, using what, what our strengths are, that, you know, we can coach in different ways, but, you know, it's got to be that we coach in a way that is going to be most effective for developing the athletes. That's a great segue into something I know you're passionate about, about being a huge advocate of having every school have a qualified strength in, in conditioning professional or staff um, and a lot of great work that's being done by the NHSCA. So how do we get school systems to first see the priority and the need? And then second, how does it get done with so many schools working with such already strained budgets? You know, I started 40 years ago, okay, in 1984, back when even, you know, smaller colleges did not have strength coaches. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, when I graduated from college to be in a situation where a school had just hired a football coach who had been at the collegiate level, where they were just starting to have strength coaches. And, you know, it was a school that had purchased some equipment. So there was kind of a, a need or a feel for the idea that, you know, we need, we need somebody to kind of run this place. So when I got started, you know, there weren't a whole lot of people around, but what happened was by allowing us to do what we did, by have the classes, have the strength program, we became very successful very quickly. Um, within a three-year span, a school who had averaged, you know, three wins a year in football for the previous 47 years, uh, you know, won a state championship. And we, we won four state championships within five years. And at one point, we're national champions. So schools from around Indiana came in and said, what are they doing that's different? I mean, I was, I've, I've been visited over the last 40 years by, I think, close to 400 schools. But many of them came in within the first 10 years once we became successful. So as a result, what happened was all of the schools in the area started looking at strength and conditioning at the high school level differently. They started 
building rooms. They started having the class. They started hiring individuals that were specific to strength and conditioning as opposed to having a sport coach do it. So I think some of this stems from once you get somebody that develops it and is successful, then other people around are okay with it. It's kind of like the idea to me of, of field turf on football fields, you know, at the high school level. You know, once somebody got it, everybody else around got it. You know, now we don't play any fields, you know, on grass fields in, in, in any of the football games that we play. But it's the same thing with strength and conditioning. And within 10, 15 years, I found that there were 30, you know, within a 30 mile radius of full-time high school strength and conditioning coaches. In Indiana, you know, over the last three years, I'd say there's at least 15 to 20 openings for high school strength and conditioning. Yet when I go nationally, I find that there are pockets of the country that haven't caught on to that. You know, and it hasn't been that somebody has been that, you know, torchbearer that everybody else is looking to. So with them, I think it's going to, to necessitate that somebody going in is going to have to be able to figure out who, do you, who you push the buttons with, with administration. Because... At the high school level, strength and conditioning is the biggest factor in, a, in the success of an athletic program. So these schools that are putting all kinds of money into coaches, into fields, into gymnasiums, into you know, everything they put it into, some of them don't understand that creating a better athlete, you know, is something that's the most important thing that they could do. It's not like at the high schools we recruit for the most part, unless you're a private school, but you have to deal with the students that you are given and make them better. You know, what I have found is that I can take kids and, and make them, you know, college level strength at the high school level, if given the resources to do so. So to me, it's about people going in and push, you know, talking to the right people to convince them that this is what we need to do. If we're going to have, you know, this program that we need to give all our kids the resources to be successful, explain how success in athletics, you know, can help community pride, school pride, explain how success in athletics is going to allow kids to be better you know, when they move on to college and, and how much athletics can actually do for them being better in whatever area of life they do and goal setting and so forth. But making them successful at it is, is what we're trying to do. So to me, it's pushing the right buttons. It's talking to the right people. It's getting a strength class during the day because, you know, even on a limited budget, if you hire a strength coach to teach strength and conditioning classes, they can have more kids in the class than a typical teacher can. So in the school itself, when you're trying to find spots for kids, they're actually, it's cheaper sometimes to have a strength coach who has 40, 50 kids in a class than it is, you know, that math teacher only has 20, 25, because it's almost like two, uh, you know, teaching positions. So really, you know, it, it doesn't cost much if you use the general fund to hire, a you know, as a teacher to do the strength and conditioning, and then it's just an extracurricular pay after school, like the typical coaching pay is. So you know, if the right bullet points, you know, are presented, if, uh, you know, a show that of what has been successful, I, you know, schools buy in, you know, I, kids don't need seven academic courses in a day, you know, they need an opportunity during a school day to, you know, move, to feel good about themselves, to develop their self-concept. And so, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, unbelievable, you know, positives that can happen if, you know, you develop a strength program at the high school level. And, you know, I think that as well as, you know, dovetailing and I want to talk a little bit more about PE is it, it, I think it can be the most valuable room in the, in the building as it can really fortify and help everything else go, going on way beyond athletics, right? In terms of behavioral stuff, in terms of uh, just energy and wellness and all those other things for even the non-athlete. Um, and it can actually be a great 
uh, unifier in some ways that, that I've seen when it's done right is that it kind of takes away that barrier of the athlete, non-athlete, when you have kids who are working on playing with each other in the same room. And it's not just about, I go and lift weights because I'm, because it's part of my sport. It's now, this is part of making, uh, as we said earlier, building better humans. Well, you know, I would tell you this at our school, we have so many athletes that we do, you know, have different classes uh, for the athletes and the non-athletes, just because uh, we are, you know, in the athletic class, we're doing plyometric jumping, we're doing footwork drills, we're doing cleans, we're doing things that are specific to an athlete. And, and we look at our physical education program the same as other disciplines within the school. You know, you're not going to take a general math student and put them in advanced calculus. So for us, we have a fitness and conditioning class, you know, for those students that, you know, we want to develop, you know, teach them how to lift weights, teach them how to move better, teach them how to change their body composition. But then we have the advanced weight training class for those that, the students that are athletes. So, you know, the kids who've shown above average interest or an ability in any specific area, I think deserve a class that is a higher level class uh, to work on those specific needs. But, you know, we feel like strength and conditioning is, is an important component of any, you know, students, uh, you know, high school participation. I mean, when they leave there, they should know how to change their body composition. They should know how to uh, you know, be more fit, you know, so that, you know, throughout life, they realize it's an important component uh, to be healthy. So let's segue what you just said, as well as something you said earlier, is that by the time they get to you at the high school level, you're kind of starting almost behind. And it's because of the lack of physical literacy that they're, they're kind of stepping in with. So if you could create an ideal curriculum for kids starting as, as young as elementary school, what are some of the things you'd like to see implemented so they're, they are better prepared physically and mentally by the time they get to you? You know, what I see constantly is that somewhere between the age of toddlers and when they arrive at high school, they've lost a lot of flexibility. Uh, they've lost a lot of movement skill. Uh, I have kids who have a tough time with just no weight getting down to a squat position. Uh, the heels come off the ground. They lean forward. They've got... I mean, they just can't bend. I've got kids that can't just do a simple lunge. I've got kids that don't understand in any way how to change direction. So to me, an ideal situation would be that throughout physical education, K through 12, throughout athletics, K through 12, that the early you know, experience involves things like a very efficient dynamic warmup. I mean, I look at dynamic warmups as not just warming up for activity, but improving athleticism. So, I mean, we do our, our lunge walks, our, our 45 degree lunge, our side lunge. You know, we different, do different movement skills that to improve athleticism in addition to getting them ready to participate. But I'd love it to where, you know, all phys ed classes went through a dynamic warm-up. All, you know, little league athletic, you know, baseball, basketball, whatever it is, all did dynamic warm-ups where they were teaching kids how to bend. You know, I'd like that they you know, at that level, teach kids how to change direction. You know, I get kids who are way too high. They don't learn how to lower their center of gravity. They don't learn how to bend. Um, and I'm teaching them basic, you know, how to push off one side and go to the other at the high school level. You know, I, I prefer it that these kids are getting that experience at a much younger age so that they're moving more efficiently. Uh, they're coming to me not with, you know, some imbalances that I've got fixed, but instead, you know, already have the basics down so that then we can move forward with, you know, adding some resistance, um, you know, and doing some things. But, you know, we've got to take a, a while to 
to get them to bend, to get them to move before we can go with what I think they're capable of doing at that high school level. Now, how much do you think it's an additional challenge for, for that to get done in physical education and in the school environment when they're just not getting as much of that organically? They're not, when you talk about the ability to change directions and, you know, accelerate and react and read and so forth, you know, you used to get that playing tag, but you don't you see yeah. playgrounds with kids playing tag anymore. You don't get to see even where they would have climbing apparatus at, at playgrounds have been taken away. So a lot of the access to just being able to go out and have free movement is not there. And now it makes it more challenging to try to jam that into a school curriculum. So how do we address some of that challenge where we have a more sedentary and less, you know, as I said, organically active uh, youth population? Well, I think, you know, we've got to understand that it, it's not happening the way it should in schools. You know, now it would be great if you could get down to the schools and you know, convince all the elementary PE teachers, the middle school PE teachers to do that. But, you know, sometimes their hands are tied. You know, they get a kid one semester within a three-year span, or they get a kid for 20, 25 minutes. So I, I think it, it's going to rely more on, you know, a lot of the youth uh, athletic programs to understand that need. Instead of just, I mean, kids used to go out and play on their own. You know, they used to go outside and, and like you said, tag. Uh, you know, I know when we were younger, we played baseball where right field is an automatic out, pitcher's hand, things like that. Uh, kids have no clue of what that is anymore because the only thing that they do are scheduled practices. And what, so what needs to change, I think, or the best way to make a change is to educate those youth athletic coaches to where it's not just dad, you know, wanting to win the, the league championship, but instead, how can I develop these kids so that they're going to perform better later? So get into our youth athletic programs and, you know, somebody from the strength and conditioning community actually getting down there and saying, you know, all teams should be participating in this. This is how you stretch correctly. This is how you warm up correctly. These are some things that all of your athletes should be able to do. These are some drills that are going to help teach them how to change direction before you worry about, you know, how many plays you can get in and, you know, scheming the offense and, and, and all the things like that that aren't really the carryovers necessary for them to be successful later on. And I hate to be the one to keep bringing up challenges, but one of the challenges now with that is, is even at the youth level, you're seeing a lot of movement out of town recreation-based sports to club level and, and pay-for-play type situations. And that's a that's a little bit tougher nut to crack. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and really, you know, the, the parent that feels like the only way my kid is going to get noticed is to play on these all-star teams and do all these travel teams and so forth. But you know, I have found that, you know, I've seen athletes in our school and I've seen athletes around that, you know, you keep hearing about that, you know, they stayed home, they worked on development, they did all that. And still, you know, we're getting those scholarships, uh, which is kind of what, you know, we've turned into now is that we develop youth with the idea that they're all going to be either scholarship athletes or professional athletes. I mean, the numbers, uh, you know, you've seen before the percentage that actually happens to, but our parents don't seem to understand that, you know, even a, a large school like ours, where, you know, we've been very successful, for instance, in football, you know, in a good year, you know, we'll have four or five, you know, division one athletes, you know, a number of division two and then division three, but we're not getting, you know, an unbelievable amount of kids, but I would say they're probably 40, 50 parents that think their kid is a D1 athlete. So, you know, that, that becomes part of the issue is that that becomes the focus, you know, as opposed to, you know, some of the things that are really much more important. Now, something that I know is very important is, and I know for myself and my personal experience in, in getting in the door with some school systems is uh, the, the more forward thinking ath uh, athletic directors and so forth 
really wanted to have an initiative to address injuries um, and wanted somebody that could support the athletic trainers who were just completely overburdened with, with beat up kids that are injured because you have this high level of specialization. You have kids who are playing year round in, in, in those sports and you're seeing a lot more injuries happen and they wanted to kind of stem the tide. So let's pivot towards our role in where we can do that and working hand in hand with the athletic training staff and keeping kids healthy and, and, and keeping them on the field. You know, I have a, a great situation at our school and that we have, um, you know, two certified trainers at the high school level. We have some at the middle school level and we have the technology to where I get on a daily basis um, something sent to me in an email of every single athlete and what, you know, they talked with the trainer about, you know, what particular injury they have, what type of modifications I need to make, what the restrictions are. So, you know, we can work hand in hand with our athletic training staff in order to do what's in the best interest of all of our athletes, you know, and it works out well. And, you know, I'm a strong believer that, you know, we do what the doctor says, you know, we do what the trainers say, we, we make those adjustments uh, as opposed to let's just push this kid through, you know, my area of strength and conditioning, their area is athletic training. I need to make sure that I look at them, you know, on that same level as the ones that, you know, I go to, to say, how do we adjust for that kid? So, you know, I think what we do, it has been shown over the years, you know, by doing the, you know, the program that we're on, by doing the athletic enhancement activities, different movement skills, that I feel like our athletes at our school, you know, are, are more resistant to injury, you know, than what I see around. And I know that I've heard from, you know, doctors and, you know, sports medicine people in the past that, you know, when they find out the kid goes to my school, it's like, okay, you know, I realize what they've been doing. I know, you know, where they can go. I know, you know, how it'll be taken care of. So I think you kind of develop a reputation as to, you know, we've developed these kids in a way to where, um, you know, they have different expectations for the rehab. They have different expectations for, you know, what they can go through. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important that you work hand in hand, but I also think that it's important that you develop, you know, the culture of the strength and conditioning program that has, that can show that you are doing the things, you know, as a part of the program that are helping, uh, you know, prevent not prevent completely, but, you know, reduce the, the amount of, uh, of injuries that'll occur. So let's, let's get a little bit into the X's and O's of your program. And so uh, being in enough high school weight rooms over the years, it can get pretty chaotic when you have so many different levels of ability, physical and mental maturity, various sports, different genders. Talk about how you kind of manage all that and a little bit about what your three set system is. Well, you know, when, when I go to conferences, when I go to clinics, when I, I mean, I have got to go with the understanding of the variables that I have. And I have classes that are between 60 and 80 students at the same time. I get 30 to 35 minutes with them. So when I look at what I can do and what I can accomplish in that period of time, I've got to look at it with that understanding of what my limitations are. I personally start with the idea that high school age student you cannot put anything into a computer and it cannot spit out what that kid can do on a particular day. High school age students are dealing with all kinds of stresses. Uh, they've got boyfriend, girlfriend issues. They've got parent issues. They've got uh, stresses in class. They've got sport issues and so forth. So for me to give them a particular weight that you're supposed to be using on this day with a number of reputations that you're supposed to complete, I think is not taking into consideration, you know, what the high school life, what the high school athlete is like. So there is some autonomy in my program, but what I have developed is a system where I can teach the kids very quickly, you know, how to determine how much weight they should be using when they improve and be able to show their improvement. So for us, we came up with 
they're going to do three sets within a seven minute time block, which that means they're gonna have a minute and a half to two minutes rest between sets. The three sets are all going to have the same weight on there. So the weight is based on, you know, if they've done a, a max in a, in a certain lift, they know that, or it's based on what they've done previously. But what they do is once they can accomplish three sets at the targeted amount of repetitions, they know that they're ready to go up in weight. It may be that the first set, they, if we're trying to get three sets of 10, they get 10, second set only eight or nine, third set seven or eight, they're fine. They're within that range that we're looking for. But once they can get three sets of 10, they go up. So you my kids who, regardless of their you know, intellectual level, experience and so forth, can figure out how to put on a, a weight and see if they can do it three times with whatever the rep, rep scheme is for that week. And so they have an understanding of what their goal is, what they're trying to accomplish. They understand the charts on the wall where they know that once we go from tens to eights, they just look at one column and they move over to the next. So for me, instead of sitting in front of a computer forever, instead of having kids trying to run around with iPads or phones or whatever to try to figure things out, it becomes very simplified. And they have an understanding of when they've improved. They have an understanding of where they're going. So for me, you know, I feel that a high school age athlete should be between eight and 12 repetitions the majority of the time. You know, in addition to getting these kids stronger and more resilient, I just feel like that resiliency in terms of uh, confidence, in terms of, you know, what, what, you know, their body composition is going to look like. I mean, I, I've had a number of schools say your kids just look different. I think part of it is that we stay within that range longer than most. So for us on things like bench squat and clean, you know, we'll go with sets of 12 for a week, sets of 10 for two weeks, sets of eight for two weeks, sets of six for two weeks, and then one to two weeks of six, four, two, and then we will test a one rep max. For the other lifts you know, that we do in the room that don't require that we test them and assess them in it, we go one week of 12s, four weeks of 10s, and four weeks of eights. So it, be, it becomes very simple for the kids to understand. I feel like it, it develops my kids in the way that, you know, establish the goals I'm looking for, which in part is, is self-confidence. So, I mean, I include things in my room like uh, bicep curl. Some people, you know, think it's taboo, but if my kid walks out of the room and thinks his arms are bigger and he's going to perform against a kid whose arms are smaller, I feel like that kid has, my kid has an edge. And, you know, until they, you know, start doing things where, you know, a kid is going to flex his hamstrings, you know, after making a tackle instead of his arms, you know, I'm going to keep doing bicep curl, you know, so, you know, some of the things we do have to do with what we're trying to accomplish and we're trying to make them better athletes, more, uh, you know, more confidence when they perform. So to me, that does it. But as far as the overall room and the chaos by sticking with the unified approach by, you know, all of the kids being on the same five station program, you know, two days up or two days lower, half the kids on upper one day, half the kids on, you know, the same half on lower the next day, you can organize and structure things in the room to where there's a time clock that once it hits zero, they know that they move on to the next one on the rotation. Each week, the starting station changes. So it gives them some variability, even though the weights, you know, the, the actual lifts have not changed. The amount of weight use has changed. The, their starting station has changed, but you can organize a large group of athletes in a, you know, a pretty condensed area because everybody knows where they're going, when they're going and so forth. But we also organize it in a way to where I have the older kids help the younger kids. I'm developing leadership in there. So when our kids first start out, you know, if there's a group of eight kids or a bench press, four different bench press, two kids per bench, I've got the older kids teaching the younger kids initially. So it becomes an atmosphere where those kids are looking at those younger ones and helping to bring them along. So it's not about how much weight we're lifting. It's about, are we doing things the right way?
And so I've got a number of peer coaches throughout the room. So by having kids helping kids, uh, you can manage large groups. By having the structure in the organization, you can manage large groups. By having the unified concept, you know, it doesn't become as chaotic. You know, it is when you're looking at some other things. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Oh, there's a lot of gold in what you just said right there. So I want to kind of pick out some of the some of the nuggets that I took away. Um, one is uh, I, I love what you're saying about the bicep curls, and I had that kind of uh, aha moment myself. I used to be the stubborn, you know, stand on the soapbox and bicep curls don't want to say championships. And then I realized, you know, what the kids are just going to their local gym and doing them anyway. So yeah. instead of having them go on their own and do dumb things, why don't I just bring it into the room? And and it got more buy-in from them. Um, but one of the things that I see coming out of what you, the way you've set it up and we're okay, once you've hit these targets three times in a row, then you get to advance. There's, there's a gamification there and there's that it, it kind of gives them challenge and which it, it gives them ability to, to create some competition, uh, within, you know, their groups or, or within the, even themselves. And also it, it takes the bias out of it, which I love is it's not me telling you can't lift heavier. I'll let you lift as heavy as you want once you've earned that badge, so to speak. So talk about how, where that comes into play in terms of either the self-competition or competition within the room and kind of brings that entire energy to it. Well, you know, I, I, again, I want it to be where it's not me standing over them cracking the whip. It's, it's them, you know, understanding what they're trying to accomplish and what it takes to get there. And so by challenging them to come up in with goals each day, you know, to, I want to be better at this and so forth, or, you know, to me, it, it, it creates that autonomy that you need where your athletes are saying, these are my goals for, as an athlete. These are my goals in terms of body composition. These are my goals in terms of strength. You know, we do a one rep max. And I know some people struggle with the idea of having high school age kids do that, but you know, it helps with assessment. It helps with, with motivation. It helps with confidence. Um, you know, we've got boards in the wall. I know some people are against record boards. They feel like it only, you know, indicates the, the top athletes, but, you know, we have it by weight classes. So there's all kinds of kids that are getting their name up there. I have kids that take pictures of our weight boards and you, you see them at their, you know, their senior open houses. I've got parents who come in and say, my kid made the board. Can I take a picture? Uh, you know, a lot of kids in, in, in my district, you know, we come from a very low income district. Uh, they don't necessarily get a lot of recognition. They don't get a lot of praise. You know, so having their name up on a board there, maybe the only time their name is, is really noticed, you know, throughout the school day. So, I mean, I think all those things are important that that kid feel good about accomplishing things, setting goals. Um, but when it becomes self-directed, you know, I, I really feel like it means more, you know, when, when a kid has invested in himself and, and, you know, gone after things himself, I think he feels much better about I've accomplished this and I've accomplished it on my own, you know, back to the, uh, the bicep curl, you know, I, to me, it's, I use this all the time. It's like sometimes when we raise kids, we if you eat your vegetables, you can have dessert, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, the curls are dessert. And the kid walks out of the room and, you know, he's pumped up. He's got a little bit of a pump. He's feeling stronger. It's like I got stronger today. Um, if he walks out of the room and all we've done is some mobility things and so forth. Um, yeah, we think we've produced a better athlete, but we haven't produced a more confident athlete. 
you know, or a kid that feels better about himself that carries over to you know, everything else he does throughout the day. You know, when, when, you're, when a kid looks different at the high school age, he carries himself throughout the school differently. You know, you see him wearing different clothes. I mean, the shirts become a little bit tighter. You know, everything is just like, I, I want to show what I've accomplished. And, you know, they feel better about themselves. So, I mean, I think you really have to take that into consideration when you're working with a high school age athlete. And it's funny you use that analogy. I use a very similar one. We call it treat of the week. And I, I, I put it the same way. We have a little arm workout we do. And I say, if you eat your meat and vegetables, you do everything, you get to do treat of the week. And then at the end, yeah. crank up the music, roll up your sleeves, and, and there we go. So something that, that that's kind of stern in my brain as you're talking, um, and it's a little a little off topic, but, but not necessarily, is that when we talk about competition and, and being self-motivated and self-driven, I'm constantly, as I get older, trying to fight being the the old bitter coach and and trying to stay connected. And, and I get around a lot of the skill coaches that are like, ah, the kids aren't what they used to be. They're not as tough as they used to be. And you hear that quite a bit. And I, I think at some level, there, there may be a shred of truth in that, but there's also, there there's an element that you need to communicate with them differently. And I don't think the human brain has evolved that much in the last 20 years or whatever it may be that they've lost that, that, that wanting for, for competition, that wanting for, for self-betterment, that I think it's just a better, it, you need to find the right tools like you've done to draw that out of them and to challenge them. They still want to be challenged. Um, it, it just need to be more artful than, like you said, than just cracking the whip and blowing the whistle. So talk about like, how you've seen it evolve since you've been doing it for a while in terms of are the kids really different or we just need to be better at getting them and learn and getting them to accept challenge and embrace challenge. You know, having done it 40 years, you know, I've seen, I, I hear this a lot, you know, it's like, well, kids have changed. Kids have changed. Well, in my room, if you came in and now versus 30, 40 years ago, the expectations and the standards are still the same. And regardless of whether the kids have changed or not, you know, I've held the bar up at that same time. I'm not lowering the bar, but I may have to find a different means of allowing you to reach that bar. So, you know, what I've seen is that, you know, before where kids were used to just, you know, the coach knows what he's doing so forth. You have to be able to convince kids, you know what you're doing now. I mean, once you establish a culture within a school district, I think, it becomes easier than most people have. But, you know, there's some subtle things that have to happen. You know, the attention span, you know, with everything that's changed in technology, you know, you've got to realize that now you're not going to sit them down for any length of period to, to give them information. You've got to have bullet points. You've got to you know, do it along the way as opposed to all at once. I mean, so there's some things like that that you say, okay, this is what they're used to or this is what they've gotten outside of here that I need to adjust so that my instructional methods, you know, may change a little bit and alter uh, to make sure that I'm meeting the needs of these kids. But in terms of standards and expectations and what they can accomplish, uh, that doesn't change. You know, high school kids are still high school kids. And, you know, when you look at, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they said the same thing. You know, no matter how long you're in education or you're in coaching, you're going to hear kids have changed. And, you know, when I've done speeches at times, I talked about even just the, you know, I use that as an example, you know, back in the day when in, in schoolhouses, when they suddenly got in, you know, indoor plumbing, people were like, okay, well, these kids are always asking ask to go to the restroom now. I mean, it, at that time, they're still saying kids are different now. But the thing is that 
some of the things within schools have changed. You know, we got we got phones in schools. We got things like that that we're dealing with. So you do have to make adjustments based on those things. You know, the kids are growing up with internet where they can look things up and say, you know, this guy's doing this, or they can see, you know, on, on social media that, oh, this is this activity I saw this guy doing. Well, you have to understand where they're coming from and make those adjustments based on what you know their life is like outside of there. But, um, you know, to say that we can't get kids in the same place, you know, I think is wrong. I mean, because we can get kids in the same place uh, sometimes it just requires a little bit different tactics. I love it. So let's get back to, to some logistics here. And, and I know some of the big limitations that high school coaches face are, are time, space, and budget. And it's great when you can have a program with a huge field house that's fully equipped and open field space and open access to athletes. But if you don't have those things, like I have schools that I work with that we have a, you know, if it's a 20 by 20 weight room with, with three squat racks and we have a hallway to work with, um, you know, that we got to make sure there's no, you know, French fries from lunch laying on there. Like we have to be a little bit more innovative. So talk about how, when you're starting small and, and you need to be able to work within the confines of that, what are some of the suggestions you have for those coaches who are trying to build something when they don't have a lot to work with? You know, I've actually been, you know, called in to consult from different schools. And, and there was one school in particular that's, uh, you know, very small schools, kind of K through 12 school. Uh, the 9 through 12 enrollment was, was like 260 students. And, you know, so they were very limited. We, we ended up um, taking a supply closet and uh, moving some things out. It was kind of an equipment room type thing where it's not very big, about the size of a classroom was all it was. We got enough equipment to where we could design a program that was similar to mine in terms of it would be five stations of upper and five stations of lower and they'd have two pieces of equipment that would accomplish that um, they put that in you know and they could do it very cheaply because they didn't go with a high-end you know equipment manufacturer they went with one that you know will use some of these things that we've got lying around to fill in and so forth so it didn't cost them a whole lot well they started doing that on a regular basis you know, within a couple of years, they actually became state champions in, in basketball, state champions in baseball, and actually sent me uh, one of the state championship ranks because they felt like one of the key things in changing what they had done was developing a strength and conditioning program. So with very little money, with very little room, it was more of the idea of setting up something that was structured and consistent, you know, within what the limitations they had, uh, that they were able to be successful with it. And, you know, with them, you know, a small 1A school, which is the smallest division in our state, uh, they were competing at schools that hadn't caught on yet. So, you know, they were able to, to get that advantage. But yeah, I mean, you have to use hallways. You have to use the equipment that you've got. Um, you know, it's great when you can, you know, order all the specialized equipment you want. But I think more important than that is the culture you establish about what you can accomplish with strength and conditioning. I mean, the athletic enhancement activities that we do once a week in the gym, don't require much equipment at all. I mean, I've got some footwork ladders, I've got some medicine balls, but even if I didn't have the medicine balls, I could still run the program. I mean, jumping is jumping. I mean, we don't have, you know, specialized boxes and cones. Uh, you know, we teach kids, you know, how to jump more efficiently, how to land more efficiently, how to get off the ground quicker. Um, those can be done, you know, without equipment, you know, just, and they can be done anywhere. So there are enough resources in terms of, you know, exercise you can do, um, you know, you can, you can do things with, you know, resistance wise that don't necessarily require expensive equipment, but are still resistance. Uh, you can do manual resistance. You can use, you know, all kinds of things that are available to still accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. It takes just kind of getting a little bit outside the box and not saying, well, we don't have all this. 
than saying, what do we have that we can, can make work? You know, I tell our kids that, you know, when we went through COVID, you know, uh, before my, my kids don't have equipment at home, but right before it started, we said, okay, if this happens, we're, you know, we're limited here. These are the kind of things you can use around your house. You know, we showed them how push-ups with chairs. We showed them how picking, you know, turn a chair over. You can do bicep curl. We told them, showed them how going against the wall, you can do, you know, a military type push-up. We showed them how, you know, grabbing milk jugs, you can do lateral raises. I mean, we went through a number of things that they could do you know, around the house. Well, schools can do the same thing. You know, you can find things where you can go to your wood shop or you go to your metal shop. If you've got that, you can go to local distributors that you can find, you know, things that will allow you to do resistance work, will allow you to do athletic enhancement activities, but you just have to make them a part of the regular routine that these kids go through. So, uh, yeah, I mean, having all the bells and whistles are great, but that's not what the key thing is. I mean, I, I can go into a room with, with no equipment and I still can, you know, these kids can come out. Uh, they're going to perform better athletically and, you know, I can get some things done. As lousy as a situation as COVID was, I think it challenged uh, everybody to be better. And, you know, we, when I was doing Zoom workouts with, with teams and I had kids with literally with suitcases and box fans doing pistol squats and those sorts of things. So you had to be innovative and you had to really figure out and re-evaluate what your principles and, and directions were when you were doing your programming. Um, so one of the things before we jump onto the next topic uh, that I know that, that when I'm going into a school and, and looking at their existing gym setup is that, uh, and, and you touched on it is it's not set up for the program. It's, they just get, they buy equipment almost like they're opening up a local, you know, fitness center. And I explained certain situations where they'll, they'll buy a piece of equipment. And I said, well, that's a, a single use, single user piece of equipment. You got this beautiful, you know, you spent a 10th of your budget on a glute hand bench that only one person can use it once. And it only does one thing. And so now what am I going to do when I have 50 kids in a room, I can't have a line of 50 waiting for that. So in terms of when you're designing that room, some of those things, like I would always trade space for, you know, a single use piece of equipment. Talk a little bit about how, when you go into a room, what are the things, the key factors you think that you need? And what are the, the big mistakes that you see being made in the schools that you consult with? Well, you know, what you mentioned is, is true. There's a lot of schools that'll build a room and then go figure out how they're going to use it, you know, which is completely opposite of the way things need to be done. I mean, before you actually go and renovate, before you purchase the equipment, you have to have in mind, you know, how are you going to utilize it? And, you know, looking ahead, how many kids are going to be in there at a time? You know, what's your program philosophy? How are you going to do it? You know, so for me, you know, when we renovated 23, 24 years ago, it was about, okay, we may have to fit 100 kids in this room, you know, and we're on a four-day split routine. So the way it works best for us is to have, you know, specialized areas where kids are doing those particular base lifts. So I knew that if I, you know, ordered five pieces of equipment for each of the five stations, that I could fit 50 kids on that side of the room, two kids per, per equipment. So I ordered things with the idea of this is what I have in mind as this is what our base program is. And I think everybody needs to do that. Before you get started, you know, I know some people just say, well, everybody's just putting in racks. So they put in a whole bunch of racks, but then they realize that there are things missing, you know, that, you know, there's only so many things you can do. And there's only so many kids can get on a rack at one time that if they had, they had ordered some more dumbbells, if they'd ordered some more things that, you know, kids could be doing some other things as, and rotate into, you know, the racks that they'd be much better off. So I think you have to have your end goal in mind. You got to say, okay, this, these are the number of kids we're going to have in here. You know, this is what the base program is. This is about a time that I've got. This is the number of stations I need to have. So how am I going to set up this room? How am I going to purchase equipment based on that? 
in order to accommodate them. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's completely backward in, in a lot of schools. And, you know, I know we go to a lot of schools where, you know, they say, hey, what, what do we need? And I said, well, the first thing you need to do is get rid of those five things over there. I said, because, you know, those are antiquated. They're just taking up space. That space would be much better used by, you know, come up with a core station where kids could do this and a number of kids could, you know, get into that. Well, and I've heard the same thing, you know, we, we have a limited amount of money. What should we use it on? Well, you use it on those things that a majority of kids are going to be able to use. I mean, I, I always push the idea of dumbbells. I mean, with dumbbells, there's so many different things you can do and, you know, fill in holes that you have maybe equipment wise. You know, it's nice to be able to buy, you know, some more expensive equipment, but if, if, you're, if your budget is limited, come up with just something you can use for resistance that will allow a number of kids you know, to get that particular movement that you're trying to get, you know, for that. So, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's being creative, but it's also going about it the right way. You know, it's, uh, and, and what you're saying is it happens more times than not is that um, they get the wrong people building the room out. You know, it's like they may go to equipment manufacturer and say, hey, give us equipment, or they may, the principal may make the decision. You know, it, it, decisions got to be made by the people who are going to be in there, the people who are going to design and organize uh, what's going on. So, yeah, I mean, you've hit on a great point there. All right. So one last area I want to dive into with a couple questions is talking about specialization versus multi-sport athletes. And so when you have uh, kids who are multi-sport athletes, the time demands that they have are, are, are pretty uh, exceptional in terms of practice time and, and, and individual skill work and everything else in addition to their schoolwork. And sometimes when something needs to go, one of the things that does get cut back is strength and conditioning. So um, in terms of handling kids who play multiple sports and being able to deal with them um, because they're always in season, there is no off season. Um, talk a little bit about how you address that. Well, you know, nowadays, even if a kid specializes, he's always thinks he's in season. Because, you know, you finish the basketball season, you go right on to AAU, you go to summer ball. Um, so even the kids who are in one sport are in that one sport year round. So, you know, I think that has become an issue because um, I, I do think that especially developmentally when they're younger, they're much better off taking some time away from sport, uh, a particular sport and developing some different athletic skills, uh, learning how to communicate, learning how to compete, learning how to win, learning how to lose, learning how to lead. I mean, all those things I think happen by, by being a multi-sport athlete. And, you know, especially when kids are younger, I mean, they can't decide at a young age what they are most suited to, what they're going to enjoy later on. So I highly encourage, you know, through the youth levels that uh, kids participate in as many things as they can. And, you know, I, there's a lot of parents think, well, if I don't send all these specialized things in the off season, get these personal trainers, do all that, they're not going to be that elite athlete that I want them to be. And, you know, I think that what you find is a lot of those kids burn out, a lot of those kids develop, you know, stress injuries, a lot of those kids actually don't make it as a result of that philosophy. So I think they're better off doing as many things as they can. Now, when it comes, I mean, there are, there are, you know, exceptions to that. I, I have, you know, some, some kids that say, uh, you know, like, for instance, the track coach wants me to run track because they said it'll make me better for football. Um, you know, and I say to them, okay, what, what area of football are you trying to improve on? You know, and, and they're kind of looking at, well, I want to get faster. I said, well, are you fast enough to be one of the sprinters in track? No. Okay. So I said, how much time in track do you think they're going to work on speed? You know, and so, you know, we do work on, you know, with our football players in the off season on, on speed work, you know, we do work on 
you know, getting them stronger, doing some extra lifts after school and do some things. And, you know, what I found is that our football players, for example, that come in, you know, after school and do an additional lifting program that we have that involves some lunges, some step ups and so forth, you know, for a period of time in the off season in that time from January to March, uh, very frequently improve their 40 time more than those kids that have gone out and done track workouts. So just resistance work has helped them with that speed that they're looking for. But, you know, if a kid loves track, I said, do track, you know, it, it's not about, you know, well, whether it will make you better for one sport or another, it's about, do you enjoy that? You know, you'll have fun with that. Will it, will it be a good, you know, getaway from just focusing on one thing all the time? So, you know, for some kids, it's, um, to me, it's the right answer, you know, two, three sports, but for some kids, not really like any other sport, yet they're not going to put their you know, heart and soul into it and it becomes a bad experience and it becomes, you know, developing bad habits in terms of being lazy. Or if they're going into a sport where, you know, there's a coach that doesn't discipline or motivate the same way that, you know, the expectations are in the sport they're with. I mean, that's another, you know, should they be doing that? You know, so I encourage kids to do a lot of activities outside of their main sport. But, you know, I also got to look at, you know, the individual situation because in, in some instances, it's not necessarily that that's, you know, the, the, the one thing you say, yeah, do as many sports as you can. Now, we've got athletes at our school, which is a very large school that, you know, very frequently do two sports, you know, rarely three sports, you know, our female athletes more often than our male athletes and can be very successful. At them. You know, we've got some people playing division one sports that have played three sports at our school, but, you know, specialized once they get to college. I think that's great. Um, but a lot of that, I think, is as a coach knowing the kid. Um, and knowing, you know, what their capabilities are, knowing, you know, what their mindsets are in terms of whether you encourage, discourage, or what, you know, what you kind of lay out for them is, is in their best interest. Uh, but to me, I mean, any kid that loves, you know, multiple sports ought to play multiple sports. You know, there, there are ways of getting around, you know, getting done what needs to be done in the off season that will still allow you to perform, you know, at a high level. And, you know, I think I've also found that those kids who, take a little bit of time away and do some other things, um, you know, really perform better because they get excited about doing it again. So you actually uh, jumped right into one, one of my next questions, which was going to be uh, the debate over utilizing and leveraging other sports to develop physical qualities like, hey, and the most common one is all football kids should run track to get faster or, hey, you should do play basketball to work on your agility. And, you know, when people ask me that, I say, well, first of all, you need to know what your, your program is. Like there are some track programs I've gone to that are really good at speed development. They're really good at being all encompassing is that everybody's getting access to the training and it's not just their four by one or four by 14. And then there's other ones where it's, you know, I hate to say it, it's the English teacher who is looking for an extra stipend who's on their cell phone the whole time and just says, you know, has them go out and run a lap or, or time trials every week. And kids not only get uh, not do not get faster, they would have gotten much better, as you said, spending that time in the weight room. Um, where they can develop those things that are more specific to them. But they've also given away it's one of the most valuable assets they have, which is time. I always explain to them, and, and this really is what you brought up, is that you only get four chances to play a winter sport in high school. And so if, if, if you want to do it, it's not, it's not going to probably be the deal breaker of you getting drafted into the MLB or you getting that Division One scholarship if you really love playing basketball, right? Right. No, I, and, you know, hit it right in the head. I mean, to me, I, I tell these kids that when I talk to the athletes, you know, five, 10 years on down the line, and they come back, 
I've never had a kid say, I wish I hadn't participated in sport, you know, that other sport. But I have had a number of kids say, I wish I hadn't given that up. I wish I'd played that. And so that's my conversation with kids when they talk about, well, I'm going to quit doing this and, and focus on this. You know, a kid saying, I'm not going to play football anymore. I'm just going to run track because I did pretty well in track. And I said, well, this is what you're missing out on by not playing football. You know, you've always liked football. You know, and these are the things, you know, being a part of a team sport like that, learning how to communicate, learning how to lead. Uh, it's not about how many, you know, reps you get in practice. It's not about how much playing time, but just being a part of something like that is going to teach you a lot of life lessons. It's going to make you better in whatever you do moving forward. And try to, you know, have that conversation with kids because, you know, I really do think that, you know, too much we're, we're, we're saying to these kids that, you know, you've got to just focus on, it, on this one particular thing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it, it comes down to, you know, do you really like a sport? You know, do you enjoy it? Do you want to be a part of it? And, and that should be the first thing, the question that's asked, you know, but, but yeah, the, uh, you know, football players are, they are going to change direction from side to side a lot more than they are going to run in a straight line. So, you know, unless that track program is developing, you know, some other things in that particular time and uh, no, the kid's not going to, you know, that's not the reason to do it. So uh, one more question that you just kind of sparked when you said kids coming back. And uh, I think one of the greatest compliments I've gotten in working with high school kids over the last 20 or so years is when a kid comes to me and says, I'm getting ready to graduate. I want to study so I can learn to do what you do. I want to be what you are. How many um, young prodigies have you put out over the last 40 years have said, Coach Vanderbush, I want to be the next Coach Vanderbush? How many have you had that situation? Well, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people that say, I mean, they know I'm getting to my last couple of years here. Okay, I mean, I've I've got year 40 right now, and I'm I'm going through 41, so I'm actually going to graduate high school in June of 2025. So, uh, you know, there's some people out there that are like, oh, man, he's got the greatest job in the world. You know, I want to do that. And, and I have a couple that are out there that are high school strength coaches that, uh, you know, are expected to be able to slide in. So, I mean, I think that they see what I do and say, that seems like that would be something that would be very rewarding. Um, and, you know, I've always approached it as what I do is not necessarily just teach weight training. What I do is make a difference. And that's what my, my goal is for each day. And I, and I think that when kids get out five, 10, 15 years from that, you know, later, when they talk to me, you know, like I said, they talk to me about, you know, the, the things that I taught them that were, were life skills that, that they feel like were very important. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, if, if you watch me work, if you watch the kids I work with and so forth, and, you know, hear the kids, I think that they understand that I'm passionate about what I do, that I love my job and uh, that I enjoy my job, you know, and there's some that say, I mean, how can you keep doing the same thing for 40 years? And I said, well, you know, because it's, it, there are new, new athletes each year, there's, you know, new challenges, there's, you know, there's things about my job that just, uh, you know, it doesn't get old, you know, it doesn't get boring, you don't get burnout, you know, unless you change, you know, the way you approach things, it, this is a job that you do forever. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope my kids get into, I mean, I, I push kids to get an education, be teachers, be coaches, uh, be strength coaches, you know, and I've got a number of them that, that have done that. You know, I feel good when they do that and, you know, proud of the fact that, you know, they've seen that, you know, what you can do with that and feel like that's something I want to do with my life. All right. So talking about moving forward and, and always uh, kind of looking to the next new and, and exciting thing, do you have anything on the horizon that you're specifically working on and in your situation? 
you know, last year at this time, I was I was working on a, a presentation where I actually did the keynote for our entire school district. So there were 2,400 people in the gym, and I gave an hour and 15 minute speech, with, which I you know always felt like was probably my most important speech, and really enjoyed it. But so start of school is Monday. Don't have that on my shoulders this year. But um, you know, looking ahead, I, you know, I'll, I'll continue to participate in the NHSSCA. You know, state and regional type, you know, activities where a lot of times they bring me in to do Q and A's and, and that type of thing. I will continue to, you know, have a number of people that'll come in and visit. You know, over the summer I had, you know, six different coaches. You know, I'll have more throughout the school year. I always enjoy when I have visitors. I feel like I can give them a mini clinic. You know, we can talk about things. I can, you know, answer their questions specific to what their needs are, and I enjoy doing that because. Uh, you know, I feel like, you know, what you accomplish in life, what your legacy is not only this, the athletes you work with, but the coaches you develop who are able to work with athletes. And that was, you know, my intention in helping to found the, the NHS SCA. And, and it has always been my intention in having people in with, you know, I sent you that, that Google Drive folder with, you know, all kinds of presentations and links and so forth. I have shared that, you know, thousands of times, you know, with the idea being that if, you know, people can become better at this, um, then you know it, it it pays off with 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 student athletes. So you know nothing really special coming up. You know no major presentations at this point. Um, you know I I've been fortunate enough and I've done a lot of national conferences and so forth. So they may be getting tired of pulling me into those things. Uh, you know feel like they hear what I have to say. But for me it's more about uh, continuing to do the things I do. You know we got some some teams that have a lot of potential coming up. You know right now I'm in the middle of preseason conditioning with football. You know, working with those guys, you know, develop some leadership there. So uh, it's it's a never ending, you know, job. There's always something to do. There's always challenges. So it doesn't always have to be something, you know, that you can kind of put on a resume or put on a poster board. But it's it's always something that you know allows me to you know look for opportunities to make a difference daily. Well, we certainly appreciate everything you've shared with us today and, and appreciate the, the work you do and, and uh, the impact that you're making and uh, have made over all these years and will continue to make. So thank you very much for, for everything that you've, you've done and everything that you've uh, shared with us today. Well, I appreciate getting the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. Awesome. And we want to thank you all for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.